Bibles to Romans. We are in Romans chapter 13, specifically verses 1 through 7. And we were talking last week about power. Power. True power. I mean, power being a transcendent life force in the world through the Holy Spirit. And not doing power the way the world does. Power, kingdom power looks like David Wilkerson who went to dangerous gangs and he said you can cut me into a thousand pieces and everyone peace will still love you that's power because that was powerful enough to bring the most violent of men under the authority of Christ so we want as Christians to take dominion for Christ well, we do not do this by our strength. We don't do this by our own power, but by God's Spirit. Amen? So, we've been talking about power. And so, how then, as citizens of the kingdom, can we bring the kingdom on earth against secular, worldly authorities? How can we do this? Can we do this with the sword? No. The upside-down kingdom says you do this not by violence. Those who live by the sword die by the sword, but by being salt and light in the place that God has placed you. Let's read then Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed, taxes, to whom taxes are owed, revenue, to whom revenue is owed, respect, to whom respect is owed, and honor, to whom honor is owed. Amen. Now there's a fear, right when we come to this text, that um, this could be abused by corrupt rulers who are in power. And there's also a fear that this passage is going to be used, or has been, and it has been used, to keep Christians... Um, silent in the face of flagrant abuse of power. And so when, we, when a lot of Christians come to this passage about submission to authorities, about government, we get a little nervous. And so we try to explain very, very carefully nuance this passage. And so one commentator, Douglas Moo, writes at the beginning of his commentary on this passage, he writes that, it is only a slight exaggeration 
to say that the history of the interpretation of Romans 13, 1 through 7 is the history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning, <laughs> which I think is exactly the case. When we come to this passage, I think a lot of well-meaning Christians try to avoid its plain meaning. The reason is because we have seen abuse of power. So what are we to do? Well, first of all, as Christians who believe this is a word of God, we don't start with what the passage does not mean. We start with the pas- what the passage does mean, and then ask ourselves if this is an absolute command, or if there are situations in which this passage may not apply in its general form. So, three, three movements or questions I want to go through today. I want to ask of this passage And then I want to ask of the Bible as a Christian. Number one, what are Christians commanded here? So what are we commanded? Let's not start with fear of this passage. What are we commanded? What is required of us as citizens of the kingdom? Number two, then, and only after, we can ask, are there situations in which this passage does not apply? Then number three, What is the biblical vision for Christian engagement with society and specifically government in general? Even a hostile government. What's what's the grand biblical vision? Well, let's start with that first question. What does this passage actually command? What does this actually mean? Number one, it means that Christians should live in subjection to governmental authorities. precisely because God is in control. Let me restate that another way. The reason you should submit to governmental authorities is because God is in control. The Apostle Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, the reason that we should submit is because God, all authority comes from God, and those, that authority, that government authorities carry out, has been instituted by God himself. So, in the first century, the atmosphere among especially zealous Jews, was takeover. It was political and military takeover. This began with the Maccabees, and straight unto Jesus' time, the the sons of thunder asked Jesus, should we call fire down on these people who defy you? Jesus rebuked them. Jesus also said, those who live by the sword die by the sword. So Jesus is not coming into the world to be a messianic aggressor, insurrectionist. He does power a different way. And the underlying assumption of a lot of these well-meaning Jews and even early Christians was that Rome, who was the dominant power at the time, was actually a threat to God's authority. That, that Nero, or, or the Caesar before him, was somehow a threat to God's power. 
Paul gives us a, a grander, a more lofty, a more mighty, a more awful view of God. There is no threat to God's power and earthly authorities. In fact, they only exist because of God's permission. And he doesn't need us to be wide-eyed insurrectionists in order to take over the world. He can do that without you. All authority comes from God, and those in authority are not a threat to God's power. In fact, government, Paul is saying, is the very means that God uses to establish law and order in nations and societies and cultures. God is actually working through, he uses means, right? God uses means, and he actually uses government in this passage we see as a means to keep the peace and to establish law and order without which the corruption of men would be vomited out and manifestly exposed. And so that's why Paul says to resist the governmental authorities is to resist the very law and order that God is preserving through those authorities. Verse 2 or 3, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. This shows what Paul has specifically in mind is especially those who carry out law and order whether that be the court system or today the police. Government and law and order is not a nuisance, Paul is saying. Nor is it a threat to God's power, but it is a manifestation of God's common grace among, among a nation without which the corruption of humanity would run wild. What would happen? Imagine what would happen if there were no governing authorities, and no, first of all, governing authorities, sanitation, transportation, the economy would break down. This is a gift from God, I think. More importantly, without law and order, what would happen without law and order? I think we saw that in Seattle last year. I think we saw that in some of the riots. This is what happened when men is left to his own devices. When the law enforcement steps back, there's riots. There's looting. There's violence, right? I mean, this is, this is common sense, really. It's a good thing to not have pagans and evil men do whatever they want to. That's, this is biblical common sense that Paul is giving us. And as somebody who understands that there is a God who is in utter control and who is sovereign, these governmental authorities are no threat to his power at all. And he does not need insurrectionists to build his kingdom. This is why that defund the police campaign was so 
utterly and self-evidently fraught with poor logic. What are you going to do if there's no police? What would you do without a group of trained and armed professionals protecting? What would you do when other violent men rise up? The great philosopher on TNT and ex-basketball player Charles Barkley said, what are we supposed to do when there's crime in our neighborhoods if you defund the police? So what are you supposed to do? Call Ghostbusters? <laughs> who, who are you going to call? The police are a gift from God. Law and order is a gift from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, and therefore to resist governing authorities is to resist the very means by which God has chosen to preserve law and order in nations. So we should understand governmental authorities, along with those who carry out law and order, as a gift, not a threat. Secondly, what this passage tells us is that since God, in virtue of the fact that God has instituted governing authorities, Christians are commanded to live as what? As exemplary citizens in the place, in the nation to which they belong. No battery went out. Okay. So we should live as exemplary citizens. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 3, the second part of verse 3, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is an avenger, he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, again, step back with me here. Does Paul think that governing authorities, those who bring law and order, somehow exist apart from God? No. They exist in virtue of God's desire for peace and law and order in his creation. So, if you do wrong, you should be afraid if you resist the authorities. You should be, you should fear. If you do, if you do right, then you will receive an approval, Paul says. But if you do wrong, understand that it's not just man's wrath that's being count, uh, that you're being given over to. It's the very wrath of God that you're being given over to. And so Paul says, live according to conscience sake. And the redeemed mind, verses 12, or chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the renewed mind understands that there is no authority except from God. The renewed mind understands that we are to live as dignified people with upright and godly lives in this present age. And the renewed mind understands that its job is to glorify God and make a good name for Christ in all things. Now, the underlying question, then, is what I just said. Will I make a good name for Christ as a citizen? Yes, we are to live that way where our lives 
actually increase the reputation of Christ, increase Christ's reputation. We should be exemplary citizens, I think, dignified. We should be upright, and we should be well thought of by outsiders. That last phrase, as I said last week, well thought of by outsiders, is actually a qualification for an elder. Yes, yes, if we're followers of Christ, we will be persecuted. But we'll be persecuted not for our character, but because of our message. There is a difference there. The reason we're persecuted is because we believe that there is no other way except Jesus Christ. And we follow him and not Caesar. At the same time, our character, our character shows how God changes lives. 1 Peter 2, 13-15, Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be as the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. People, do not be the kind of Christian who fulfills the notion that Christians are just hateful, ignorant bigots who are angry at everyone. Yes, we do hate sin. And that's what genuine love is all about. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So we do hate something. It is sin. At the same time, we could do that with an erect, upright, respectable posture that the world sees. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Robins, says, Christians, who at this time were regarded as the scum of the earth in Rome, must not get an additional reputation as troublemakers. No good will come to the cause of the gospel by followers of Jesus being regarded as crazy dissidents who won't cooperate with the most basic social mechanisms. Paul is anxious precisely because he believes that Jesus is the true Lord of the world, that his followers should not pick unnecessary quarrelers with lesser lords. They are indeed a revolutionary community. But if they go for the normal type of violent revolution, they will just be playing the empire back at its own game. So, yes, we are called to be a revolutionary community, but we don't do it in the predictable way of shouting, screaming, taking up swords, and thrusting our enemies asunder. We do it through a different kind of power, a dignified kind of power, a loving kind of power, a merciful kind of power, an upright and godly type kind of power. So our job, Paul is saying, is to make a good name for Christ as a citizen, not by being a wide-eyed revolutionist. That's the predictable way, he's saying to these Romans in the first century, but by being a good citizen. He says, that's why you pay taxes. 
you, it's a good thing to pay taxes so that you pay people who can actually carry out law and order, which is in fact the will of God. It's a good thing to pay taxes. So Paul is undercutting this attitude that existed probably among Romans, who, and Rome did abuse taxes, but he's undercutting an attitude which says that, you know, government has no authority over my money. It's my money. I mean, how, how, are, how is the government going to tax me on land that I own or on a car that I own or on bread that I bought? How, how is the government going to get money? So it seems to me, even today, that there is unfair, unreasonable, and I would even argue unjust taxes. And that keeps rising up and up. And, and there's a, almost a communist idea sweeping across our nation where the people who have worked hard have to pay more for the people who didn't work hard. So I do believe there's injustice in taxes. So what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what we don't do. There, and I'll, there was a, um, an apologist that I really, really appreciated in my early 20s. I was young, I was just learning theology, and he was a really good apologist and was giving answers for creation and, and the universe having to have a cause. He was debunking evolution. I was really into this stuff. And, and he, was, he was going around the debate circuit and, and really doing well. Um, but he, he got led astray by this idea that we should not, the government does not deserve our taxes. And so he would, in the name of Christ, say, well, I'm running a ministry. And so he decided not to report his taxes correctly so that he would not have to pay the government as much as they owed. And he was doing this for years. And on the down low, he was kind of whipping people up in that community, saying that taxes were unjust and, and we should not pay the government. And this is a good thing to evade taxes like this. And he ended up being found out, being dragged out of his house in the middle of the night by the FBI and spending 10 years in jail. Does that make a good name for Christ? Or does that fulfill does that fulfill what the world, what the hateful world is saying about Christians? I'm not saying we have to live up to their standards. I'm saying, does that make a good name for Christ? No. It does not. So Jesus didn't think that he needed to pay taxes either, a certain tax. He said to Simon, after they said, listen, what's your master not going to pay temple tax? <coughs> Jesus said to Simon, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or others? And when he says from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. In other words, we are God's true children. We should not have to pay temple tax to worship. However, Jesus said, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea, cast a hook, and take out the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus thought 
believed that he did not have to pay taxes. It was not required. In fact, it was, it was incorrect for the sons to pay taxes nevertheless so as not to offend them, so as not to die on every single hill. Go get this coin. I would love, by the way, I'm a fisherman. I would love to catch fish and then get money out of their mouth. That'd be great. But go get the fish, take the shekel, and pay the taxes. Jesus said, pay your taxes. So don't try to become an anarchist. In other words, Paul is saying to first century Christians, and he's saying to us today, don't try to be a revolutionary in the name of Christ. God does not need us to take over the government. Does that mean that we capitulate to everything the government says and does? No. Does that mean that we are silent on every or any moral issue? No, it does not. But it means that as we register disagreement, we do so in a way that gives a good name for Christ. So that's what the passage means. It means we should submit to authority, we should live as a good citizen, dignified citizen, so that the world could see us and say that is an upright and respectable person and family and church and community. And we should pay our taxes. And we should not try to skirt around taxes. And even though we think, yes, the government is unfairly taxing certain people who have worked harder than others, what do we do? We faithfully fill out our tax forms the way we should and pay it when the bill comes. Now, are there situations... Next question, question number two. Are there situations in which submission to the government is wrong or unfaithful? Now, some of you are saying, why is he even asking this question? It's just there. I mean, we should. There it is. Let's move forward. Why are you even asking this question? Um, the reason I'm asking this question is because there are some people, well-meaning people, who might think that this is an absolute command. And when I mean absolute, that means it applies to every situation, to every person, unwaveringly, no matter what. And I think what we have to do when we come to this passage, although understanding that it does mean we should be respectable, upright, cooperative citizens, it does not entail that we bow the knee in every situation. So let's employ some sanctified common sense for a second. Paul, him by being faithful to Christ. So, is there a situation, and I, I don't want to unpack this into the multiplicity of complex situations and to issues today in which we, I just want to give one main answer here today. Is there, are there times in which we should not submit to government? Answer, yes. When is that time where we should not submit to government? Well, Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God, God's, what belongs to God. Obviously, that means, yeah, give Caesar taxes. Give him his owe. 
but render to God what is God. Before he said that, he asked whose image is on this coin. And it was Caesar's image. The implication of what Jesus is saying is, what, whose image is on you? Who, who, to whom do you owe your life and existence and entire being? God. So yes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render everything in your entire life to the Lord. But, so, so back, to the, back to the question. Are there times when we should not submit to government? Yes. When is that time? The moment that Christians are told to render unto Caesar what belongs to God. That is when we refuse. And that is when we disobey governmental authorities, no matter the cost. When they tell us to stop praying, and this may happen in some of our lifetimes, I think the most faithful, and I don't relish saying this, because I know that I might be put to the test in 30 years. I don't relish saying this. But when they tell us to stop praying, the most faithful thing to do is to do what Daniel did, and open my windows and pray towards heaven three times a day in holy rebellion and defiance of what the government has said. And to continue to make disciples of all nations. And when they stop and when they say to stop it, I say what the disciples said in Acts 5. We must obey God rather than men. And when when it comes to a situation like it is in China today, we meet underground. And how it is in Afghanistan, how it just turned in Afghanistan this week. And what, when I was in Nyack College, a pastor from Afghanistan came and gave a chapel. And he was telling me about the violence in Afghanistan, the dangers in Afghanistan. He said he would open up the dumpster and see half-eaten live children in the dumpster. There would be explosions every day. But he said, Lord, if you promise, if you give me this church and you bring people to it, I will put up a big banner on the top of this building that says Jesus Christ is Lord in Afghanistan. I don't know what ha- what if he is even alive today. But that is the kind of faithfulness that the Lord honors. In defiance, in defiance of who's in control. You know, in the um, in the first century, first second century, you could be forgiven. You could be forgiven. Caesar would forgive you for saying that Christ is Lord, which was a title given to Caesar. You would be forgiven if you only offered a pinch of incense to Caesar as an offering. Or you would die. All you had to do was offer a pinch of incense to Caesar as an offering. And Christians, many Christians would not do it. 
And the world, from what I understand, from what I've heard in sermons and teachings and read, is that the world was saying, what is wrong with you Christians? This is such a small thing. You are making a mountain out of a molehill. They would not do it. And Polycarp, a disciple of John, it is thought, died at the stake for that very reason, that he would not give a pinch of incense to Caesar. So, if they require a loss of job or money, family or life, then it has been granted unto us to suffer for his sake. That is the position the Lord has put us in, and we will, it would be proper for us to, like the disciples, rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And I do not say this as somebody who believes this will never touch me, or believes this has just touched other people. I say this as somebody who, hopefully by God's grace, if this does happen, I am ha- given the mercy and the grace to be bold and claim the name of Christ. Because the church has been watered by the blood of the saints. The church has advanced through martyrdom and by holy defiance. So if it comes to that, it comes to that. But we don't relish defying the government. That's what, we should, that's what we should take away from this passage. We should not relish defiance. We should not relish defying governmental authorities whom God has put in charge for law and order, even if we disagree. What we do is we obey until the point that we cannot any longer. And then when they put us to the sword, we still do not relish defying them, but we do it because we are required to obey the Lord. And we do it not out of hatred for them, but out of pity for the wrath that they are incurring upon themselves. If they require mixed devotion from us, we do what we do not relish doing because we are required to obey Christ. And then we pity them. I, I, I resonate with that. That's what I resonate with. Not by strength, not by power, but by the way of the cross. That is the kind of power that is strong enough to bring the structures of secular society to its knees in obedience. Third question, then, is what is the vision? What is the vision for how we should be in government? Now, I I admit our country is becoming more secular. And you've heard me say this before. Even though our country is becoming more and more secular, I have a holy hope for the world. I I do believe that we can see nations come to Christ. 
even if at the very end, it all goes downhill. And we're raptured out of it. We're raptured up. I heard one guy say that he has no problem changing his eschatology midair. So if he's up in the air and he didn't think there was a rapture, well, I'll gladly change my theology. But I, I do believe that there is a kingdom to advance in this world. And it will grow. And it is powerful. And it started with one man who died and rose again. Who told 12 people to minister the gospel. Who did so, and one day 3,000 souls were saved. And from there, nations and millions have come to Christ. So how can we, uh, so in other words, I do lean towards and lean into and hope that we can see the world come under the authority of Christ. That is my hope, a bright and shining hope. Um, so how can we do that? By the sword? No. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. How did Jesus say? Jesus said, I want you guys to be swords and axes. I want you to be fire and brimstone. He said, no, I want you to be salt and light. Salt, when applied to meat, has a good effect on that meat. It preserves it adds flavor. It makes that thing better because it's applied to it. That is how I think we can take over the world for Christ, not by our own effort, but by God's strength and power within us. God will soon crush Satan under your feet, Romans 6, 20, 16, 20. But salt permeates the meat and has a good effect on it. Likewise, Jesus said, the kingdom is like leaven hidden in a lump, which when it, when it grows, it, it, it takes over the whole lump of bread. The, all the dough is permeated by the leaven. So I think we should permeate culture. I believe we should engage and reform society. How can we do this? Number one, in the home, teach your children to love and fear God. Don't neglect to disciple your children. Read them the Bible. Ask and answer questions. Model for them what it means to be an upright and faithful person. And pray for them. And if they stray, continue to pray for them. Knowing that the prayer of a righteous man has great power when it is working. James says. Number two, in the church, churches should preach the gospel and not just call for one-time decisions, but call for a lifetime obedience to Christ and to make disciples of those people. Yes, as, you, as I've said many times, the Great Commission starts with the word go, but it ends with the command to teach them to observe all I have commanded you. So it's not just about a blurting out the gospel, it's about making disciples of people. Number three, get out of debt so that you can be a blessing to other people. Just do that. I think that's a good thing. Own your house, get out of debt, and then when a brother or sister 
or even an unbeliever needs a new car, spend $7,000 and buy it for them. Or if someone needs a place to live, open up your home. Be salt and light and show the world the uniqueness, the love, and the power of the renewed mind. So get out of debt. Use your money, your resources, not just money, your resources for the Lord as the Lord sees, as the Lord gives you opportunity. Whatever those might be, not just money. Number four, send your kid to Christian schools. Uh, Chapel Field is a good, good school. I'm glad my kids are there. They teach children the Bible. Um, and I, I understand we want to be salt and light and send our children out into a secular world to be salt and light. But my daughter's five, and she needs to be discipled, right? So we need to make sure we teach them well when they're young. And Chapel Field helps me do that. Permeate society. Um, if you're an intellect, become an academic in the university. That's becoming less plausible today to become a Christian academic in the university. Nevertheless, it's still an option. Permeate, overtake the culture by being salt and light. Permeate like leaven. Permeate like salt. Have a, have a cultural and political agenda for the world in the way you live. Have, make God's agenda your agenda. And thereby, we might be able to begin to see nations come to Christ. But I'm saying play the long game. Don't think that we're going to see that in our lifetime necessarily. What God calls the church for, as Eugene Peterson says, is long obedience in the same direction long obedience in the same direction. So don't think about seeing this happen necessarily in your lifetime or your children's lifetime, but being part of a movement called Christianity, which maybe in 3,000 years from now, maybe in 3,000 years from now, all the nations come to Christ through slow, consistent, long obedience and permeation of society. So, in summary, then, we are told to be a good citizen, do not resist authorities. The way you overtake the world is by permeating within the structures and the mechanisms that God has ordained already. Peter summarizes it in 1 Peter 2.17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Period. Okay? We don't have to like presidents. We don't have to agree with everything they say. But we are told to honor the emperor, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, but fear God. So let's close in a word of prayer. And I'd like you to join me in praying for not just what we do as a church, but praying for putting this into practice right now and praying for our leaders. Let's do that right now. Heavenly now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only wise God be glory and majesty and power and dominion now 
before all time and forevermore. Amen? Amen. If anyone would like special prayer, I would love to pray with you. God bless you.